everybody had a story and they had a story of a good death or a hard death. And the difference between a good death or a hard death was often whether they had had a conversation about what their loved one's wishes were. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and creative guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager, and I love to hear from my listeners. My new website, ZestfulAging.com, is up and running, and it makes it easy for you to leave comments or suggestions. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker from her CD, Buffalo Hotel, and it will be available in January of 2020. Judy Banker is also a guest, so you can hear my interview with her on the podcast. Well, I've got my Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. Today, we're speaking with Ellen Goodman, who has spent most of her life chronicling social change and its impact on American life. As a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, she was one of the first women to open up the op-ed pages to women's voices and became, according to Media Watch, the most widely syndicated progressive columnist in the country. Ellen's current focus is The Conversation Project, a public health campaign and a movement that works to change the way people talk about and prepare for their end-of-life care. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you. Appreciate it. (laughs) You have got some serious awards, and you have made such important contributions to the world of journalism as a woman. Do you want to first uh, talk about what that road has been like for you? Sure. I guess I'm a recovering journalist now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not an enemy of the people, whatever the president says. Oh, goodness. Um, But I spent uh, uh, from my 20s till my till 69 in journalism, and I wrote a column for 30-odd years uh, during that time. And it was a wonderful time to be a journalist. And at the same time, toward the end of it, I or my last column was called Letting Myself Go (laughs) (laughs) and Raising the Question, Where Do You Go When You Let Yourself Go? (laughs) So uh, I wrote a I was for the first 10 years of my career as a journalist, I was a reporter. And then I started writing columns because as my editor at the time said, um, I was trying to get her opinions out of the news hole. (laughs) So that's just, that was a joke at the time. Uh, And twice a week, I told people what I think. And um, that's an interesting way to make a living, telling people what you mm. think. It certainly, it did certainly you encounter was a wonderful pre- experience. Did you encounter pressure as a woman uh, being, provo- you know, people considering you provocative or um, anything oh, like that? Oh, sure. And, of course, I started covering the women's movement um, in the largest meaning of that, which is the movement of women from one life pattern to many. 
and especially the movement of women into the workforce, which was a huge social change. So I started in the 70s, literally covering and talking about the women's movement. And, um, you know, a lot of people didn't want to hear about that. (laughs) (laughs) How did you Uh, handle that kind of feedback? You know, um, I had a cohort group at the Boston Globe, which was my newspaper, which was very supportive. So that mattered. But also, I think I it didn't bother me because it wasn't as vicious as social media is now. But I did get, at the time, the equivalent of a Twitter feed was a postcard. And the postcards from people who hated you, you know, they were written all around. And then they were written around the edge. And they were written around the front. <laughs> and they had a lot of exclamation points oh, and a wow. lot of, um, a lot of uh, uh, expletives. We call those haters now, right? Yeah. The haters. Yeah. I mean, it still happens, you know. Um, But they're, I think, to me anyway, and this is probably good advice for the younger women who are listening to you, uh, I've always told younger women that you only give a handful of people a chit to make you feel bad about yourself. Those are the people who are close to you. And if they say you've gone off the rails or if they're mad at you, that matters. But you do not give a chit to everyone who has your email address. Did you have to learn that, Ellen? Or is that something you kind of knew right off uh, from the gate that when uh, you started uh, talking about how you felt and your perspective, people were not going to always embrace that? I think I... I I can't really answer that, but I think I knew a lot of it. I think I felt pretty confident um, uh, as a young reporter uh, because when you tell people what you think, they tell you what they think of what you think, you know, (laughs) and and that's okay. Um, Where it goes often now in social media is completely into some sort of vicious and often threatening direction, and Mm -hmm. that... We can't allow, as women in particular, that to scare us from speaking because then you've lost. And um, so I think I always had that sense of uh, there are a few people, as I said, who you, who, who you care. You care if they think you've, you're in the wrong place. But the rest of them is just um, that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. To sort of have some acceptance about that's part of the job. Yeah, that is part of the job. Um, and I, I think I always found that I didn't really worry about that too much. Mm-hmm. Of course, Talk it's of- easier as you get older. Yes, that is for sure. I will often tell my clients that, that the self-consciousness they feel at 20 and 30 will, uh, will really start to decrease as they get older. Um, talk a little bit about how you came to develop the Conversation Project. Well, I came to think about end-of-life wishes when my mother was ill. And my mother and I had talked about everything. I used to say that, you know, we had talked about everything except one thing, which was the end of life. Mm -hmm. And 
the closest we had ever come to having a conversation about how she wanted to live at the end of her life, the care she wanted and the care she didn't want, is when she would look at somebody who was in a difficult situation and point to them and say, if I'm ever like that, pull the plug. Mm. But the truth is that there was no plug to pull. There rarely is. Mm-hmm. My mother's decline was slow and uh, she got dementia as an elderly woman in her 80s. And uh, she could no longer tell people what she wanted for lunch, let alone what she wanted for healthcare. Mm. And that fell to me. Um, I was what we, a woman who was on the same visiting schedule as I used to call the designated daughter. And I suspect (laughs) there are a lot of those in your audience. And uh, uh, I was quite surprised to have that role thrust on me. I don't know. I think I had the idea that doctors made these decisions. And um, doctors can't make the kinds of decisions that can come up. Uh, So um, uh, I'll give you an example, which was that one day I was on deadline and I got a call from uh, the assisted living where my mother was, and the doctor said she had a pneumonia again, and did I want her to be treated with antibiotics? And I stood there with my fingers over the keyboard, and I said, what is he asking me? Do I want her to live or die? You know, could I call you back? Could I have a minute? You know? <laughs> oh. Um, and it, 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 it was... Uh, clear to me that what what he was saying was that she's had pneumonia several times, she had dementia and so forth, and what did I want? And at that time, um, I did uh, want her to go back on antibiotics, and then later chose not to. She survived the infection anyway, and then died what we call naturally, whatever that means in today's uh-huh. medical world. But the, the fact that what I wished was that I had had her voice in my ear, that I had known what she would have wanted under that circumstance. And I began to talk with other people. And this is uh, something that was remarkable to me in my journalism career. You know, I've talked to a million people. And um, in this case, every time I would raise the question or tell a story about end-of-life care, it would be half a beat and then bingo. Some people would tell me their story. And it was clear that everybody had a story and they had a story of a good death or a hard death. And the mm. difference between a good death or a hard death was often whether they had had a conversation about what their loved one's wishes were. Mm. And so... Um, I began to pull together a group of people who we, we, they were doctors, media people, clergy, um, a variety of people. We sat around the table. We each took off our professional hat and told our stories. And then from that meeting at the table, uh, we created what we ultimately named the Conversation Project. Uh, we were wonderfully fortunate we found a home for it at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which is a phenomenal um, healthcare uh, institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found a 
great group of people um, who came together to work on the conversation project. And from that small beginning, we are now in almost every state. We have um, uh, a lot of uh, groups. We have a toolkit. And we have a lot of, uh, you know, um, uh, videos and and uh, mostly the toolkit is one of our most impressive. We became basically the conversation project is a uh, public engagement campaign to ensure that people's wishes for end of life care are expressed and respected. Both mm -hmm. of those things. Mm -hmm. And Did if you, you go to our website mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. What you find that's probably most helpful is uh, the conversation starter kit, which helps people to begin these conversations mm -hmm. with their loved ones. And it's been used by over a million people. Oh my oh. goodness. So that's it's... been really um, very sustaining. It's just been inspiring to all of us at the, at the project. Uh, that we are engaged in the business of social change, and it's really quite remarkable. So I've gone from covering social change mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to, to making uh, it to promoting it. Right. Mm -hmm. What well, can you talk a little bit about the conversation starter um, form, which I've looked at, and a living will? How are they different? Well, the conversation uh, project. It, it, we're engaged in getting people to the kitchen table to have a conversation with the people they love about how they want to live at the end of their lives, mm -hmm. the care they want and the care they don't want. And that's different from a living will, which may have you, you know, check off um, uh, or, or, or write what it is that, what kind of medical care you want. We are, um, uh, it, we want to ensure that people talk about it. We don't just want you, you know, what happens in most people's lives is they go to the estate planner or they go to their lawyer or they, to make a will and the lawyer pushes a piece of paper across the table and says, mm -hmm. okay, sign this, who's your proxy? You know, who do you want to make decisions? And they do that. And first of all, they've given it no thought. Second of all, they haven't actually talked to their families. Third of all, the proxy doesn't know they're a proxy. So, oh, I mean, all of these things can happen, but most mm -hmm. importantly, they haven't really talked to their families and talking to your family is a huge gift and not talking. We have found, we know from research that when people have conversations about how they want to live at the end of their lives, um, their survivors are less depressed, less guilty, and much less uncertain about whether they've done the right thing. So you want mm -hmm. to leave your family no, is everybody's gonna. Everybody mourns. Everybody suffers huge losses, but there's a big difference between when you felt that things went well and things went badly. Hey, Zestfulagers! Last year, I attended the International Federation on Aging's Global Conference in Toronto, and they've announced the 15th Global Conference on Aging for Niagara Falls, Ontario, from November 1st through 3rd, 2020. 
Zestful Aging Podcast is a proud partner for this conference, and I encourage you to all consider attending. The conference features prominent experts presenting and discussing critical issues within the field of aging. So head on over to ifa2020.org to learn more. And I hope to see you in Niagara Falls in November. What are some of the obstacles, Ellen, that you found in your research and and even in, in your personal observation? What gets in the way of people having these family conversations? People are reluctant to start. Once they start, these conversations go well, and they're almost always grateful that they have done this, but they don't know how to start. Um, let's take the dyad that we think about, you know, which is a middle-aged child and an uh, elderly parent, um, and frankly, mostly the middle-aged daughter and the older mm-hmm. parent. Uh, and that middle-aged child may be reluctant to start the conversation. They don't want to th- their parents to think they're dying. They don't want to. Uh, they they don't want to. Uh, they don't even want to think about it. But they don't want to uh, worry their parents about. Um, whether they are, uh, uh, whether this is uh, unseemly, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and the adult and the elderly parent doesn't want to worry their children, um, period. They don't want to. So what we say is uh, that what we say in the conversation project is, you know, for um, adult children to start this conversation or, or elderly parents. But if adult children start it, they should begin it by saying something, mom, dad, I need your help. Mm. It's a rare parent who will say, no, I'm not going to help you. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if you ask for help, you say, I mm. need your help because I may have to make decisions and I need to know what it is that you would want. That's and, a great way. That's a great entree. I think it's it's not threatening. It's not, you know, uh, insulting. It's just very open. Yeah, it is. And and we do find um, that when people have these conversations, they feel both relief and uh, they feel um, uh, good that they have got something on the table. The other thing that happens, of course, is if you have more than one child or that those children may not agree. And you want to make sure that those children know what you want. It's not about what they want. It's not about mom loved me more. Right. <laughs> it's that you want them to know and respect what your wishes are. So that's very critical, too, for them feeling fine after um after a death you know one of the things that we do do one of the things we compare this to is um childbirth because if you remember um that childbirth uh, a generation ago or more uh you know it, it changed before, you know, women had their feet in the stirrups. They did what the mm-hmm. doctors said. They were and, unconscious. Yeah, they were unconscious. And then um, all of this changed. And it didn't change because doctors said, oh, uh, you know, come, let's have the baby in a bathtub. You know, bring your husband into the birthing room. <laughs> right, I have an idea. Come on and bring your family. Right. Yeah. Doctors didn't say that. It was That's because right. families said, you know what? 
childbirth is not just a medical experience it's a human experience. And we're saying the same generation that changed childbirth is also saying, you know what, dying is not just a medical experience, it's a human experience. How interesting. Have there been any unexpected effects or consequences um, that you can see coming out of the conversation, starters, um, anything that surprises you? Well, I think, one thing that has surprised me is that this change has been really relatively swift compared to others. People are talking about it more. Um, remember death panels? <laughs> remember the pat what some what was it ten years ago um, when uh, we first said that it was first proposed that Medicare and Medicaid would pay doctors for having end of life conversations and Sarah Palin turned this into yes. death panels that we were yes. asking for death panels and every politician freaked out they all dove under the table. Um, and then fast forward, you've had books like Atul Gawande's, you've had projects like ours, you've had other books. Death and, cafes. And we do death over dinner as well. Mm -hmm. um, so you've had this social change since then. And now Medicare, Medi Medicare does in fact pay doctors for their time modestly in having these conversations, but it's encouraged. So I think it's been a fairly remarkable change. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that too. I was going to ask you about that, but just in my, you know, uh, inviting guests uh, to talk about these subjects, um, there seems to be a lot more folks doing things like death over dinner, death cafes, you know, death doulas, training death doulas. Just, you know, the idea of pretending it's not going to happen hasn't really worked that well for us. Yeah, right. There's a wonderful headline that came from, I think it was The Onion, which said, you know, the online satirical magazine, mm -hmm. which said, death rate holds steady at 100%. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. But you know, That's we've perfect. done some of this with humor too. If you go to our website or you go to YouTube and put in the conversation project, you will see some of our um, online, uh, some of our videos, which we have a very funny video on um, how to how to pick a proxy, and we have a very funny video on uh, a practice makes perfect its call that's on choosing, it's on um, start, trying to start the conversation and has people doing it all badly and then doing ah. it well. So, you know, we try to do this with a lightness of spirit at times, as well as great emotion. And uh, so do you hire people? Do you hire actors? Or these are all staff folks doing this? Well, we we did hire, um, this is this is the, the family rate. My daughter, who's a comedian, did <laughs> produced a couple of these. My daughter and son-in-law produced a couple of these videos for us. So that Perfect. was really a lucky. <laughs> Keep it in the family. <laughs> yeah. Right. What do you hope uh, becomes of the conversation project? What are your What are your plans for this? Well, we hope that um, everybody will have a conversation with the people that they love at the kitchen table before there is a crisis 
so that the norm will be to have talked about our end of life wishes. Um, as I said before, there is a crisis because crisis is a terrible time to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're really talking about improving society. Yeah, <laughs> small <laughs> way. And, you know, we know that there are various, we have engaged, for example, faith communities. We have engaged um, all different uh, ages and ethnic groups and, and so forth um, to think about the different ways in which uh, we can promote the and make people comfortable with these conversations. Mm-hmm. And speaking of uh, making society uh, better, do you want to talk a little bit about Encore.org? Yes. Well, I suppose my work at the Conversation Project is my Encore career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I've also been on the board of Encore.org, Second Acts for the Greater Good, which encourages us all to reimagine what it is like to. Um, reimagine it, uh, older age, and to think about older age not as a time in which people are a problem, uh, that either they are, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, a leech on the system because they're not working, <laughs> mm-hmm. or they they remain working and so they're bot- the bottleneck, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but rather we're not a problem, we're problem solvers. We're a huge resource to be called upon to solve some of the problems in American society, particularly perhaps problems of intergenerational um uh, of young of the younger people, and I think that's really wonderful because you know for a long time the idea was you'd retire to Sun City and you'd play golf. Not that I have anything against golf because I do play it, mm-hmm. but now the idea is that you know um, we have 30 more years of life expectancy than we did 100 years ago. What are we going to do with that to make ourselves and our society happier? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, finding purpose and meaning in these years is extremely important, both for your health and for the health of your of the world in which you live and the world you're le- leaving behind. And that is just, uh, I think people are, are also um, moving into that. And they're thinking about not when I retire, but what I do next. Mm-hmm. Um as they get to be even 50, 60, um, and certainly older, and they're thinking about um, finding meaning and purpose in their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm. It sounds like you are doing that very well. Y- yes. I mean, I think all of us are, uh, you know, we're trying to, one of the things that you want as you get older is a little bit more flexibility. Mm-hmm. But you want also to retain some uh, both respect and meaning. Uh, what is it that I can bring? You know, too too often older people are kind of put in the corner and uh, n- nobody pays attention to their experience or to their wisdom. And w- that is a waste of this huge resource when America needs it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Anything else you'd like to say to our listeners in terms of the the approaching their second act in a way that's good for them and also good for the world at large? Uh, find something that matters to you, whether it's um, your church group down the road or whether it's environment or whether it's your kindergarten. Find something that means a lot to you and that you can connect with. And in terms of the conversation project, Nicole, have you had the conversation? I did five wishes. Well, you could, I would suggest that you also go to our conversation <laughs> starter kit and yeah, go, I, go longer, you know. Uh, yeah. So go a little bit deeper. Five mm-hmm. wishes is great, and we recommend that. But before that, going deeper and having the conversation with the people in your family and the people mm. who you love is mm-hmm. really important. So I always, mm-hmm. I always ask my, when I do an interview, yeah. I always say, okay. And a lot of time what I get is a kind of sheepish, you uh, know, I've been meaning to do that. <laughs> you like to put your interviewer on the hot seat. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> trying to spread a little, spread the word. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. I think this is so important for our audiences to hear it. I've talked about it, it with other guests before, but we can't we can't overstate this i mean you're really giving this gift to the people you love and who are going to ultimately have to make some very hard decisions yeah and everybody if there's something that people say to us is say oh it's too soon and our response is it's always too soon until it's too late mm-hmm. and we see that all the time that is for sure Thank you so much, Ellen, for spending time with me today and talking about the Conversation Project. What's the best place for our audience to find out more? Theconversationproject.org. Okay. Okay. You will find just lots of fun, interesting, thoughtful. We have not just the Conversation Starter Kit, but we we have a... a guide for families who are dealing with Alzheimer's and other dementias. And um, we also have a guide on how to pick a proxy. I I also saw something about uh, how to deal with having a terminally ill child. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that was a very tender um, part of the work. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable. 
but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. 